Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Thank you, thank you. I know you're only doing that because I am too sexy for this dress and full marks for observation. And normally it wouldn't matter, and today it particularly doesn't matter because the thing is, you see, when people first heard that I was going to be doing a show called Pantasocracy, I suspect that loads of them thought, oh, she's going to be talking about sex all the time. And then they were disappointed. But finally, in season four, no more disappointment because this is the show that we are going to be talking about sex and the Irish. So to help me talk about sex, not that I need that much help, but I do today. Um, we have four wonderful guests in our parlor today. First of all, let me introduce you to the self-titled joy bringer, Miss Taryn Devere. Warm Pantasocracy welcome. Now, uh, there will be photographs on the website so listeners can check out what she's wearing because she's wearing, how would you describe your own headwear? Taryn. It's like spread eagled legs. Yes, it is. With a sort of vulva created by my own hair and yes. then like a little hand coming down, touching certain parts of the hair. You thought you were just coming to like a little chat show thing and now you've met a vulva made of hair. Um, <laughs> she is coming today for, all the way from Donegal and she's a woman known for these sort of colourful ensemble. Although she is an Australian originally, um, yes, she followed a man here, of course, don't we all? And she has long made Ireland her home for herself and her five children up in Donegal. So once again, for Taryn Devere. <laughs> Next to Taryn is a, can I say hunky and not make you feel uncomfortable, is a hunky former professional football player, Mr. Richie Sadler. <laughs> These days, of course, he's on the telly talking about sports rather than playing it, but he's also a psychotherapist, and for the last few years, he's been involved in running sexual health and consent workshops with teenage boys. So once more, welcome, Richie. And then we have a woman who, quite frankly, sells sex and pleasure. It's uh, Shauna Scott of Sex Shopper. And like Taryn, Sean is also a blow-in from Seattle in the United States, but she did Seattle here. Yeah, uh, because she also fell in love with a fella and followed him here. Uh, but since then, she's become, as she says herself, a smut seller, <laughs> determined to put pleasure back into the lexicon of Irish sex talk with her online sex shop, Sex Shopper, which is particularly female-friendly. And um, so please welcome Sean again. On the other side, um, we have a man who's made a career out of studying the sexual habits of the Irish. It's academic Paul Anthony Ryan. And now Paul's research ranges from the story behind the gay rights movement to Angela McNamara's Agni Ann column to sex workers and digital dating or uh, hookups. And yes, mothers out there, that is now a career. Uh, so please welcome our very own sex doctor, Paul Ryan. <laughs> And in the tradition of leaving fine wines to last, we've got two beautiful women that I have known for a long time. They are musicians and uh, social change activists. Please welcome Carol Nelson and Maria Walsh of the funky Jazzy Twosomes Razy. Now, Carol hails from England, but we won't hold that against her, and Maria from County Tipperary, like her next door neighbor there, Dr. Paul. And uh, they were, once upon a time, sweethearts. But that love affair crashed and burned and became a friendship. But the threesome that they have with music has endured. <laughs> yes. Uh, and by the way, see, now here's something important. If you think that Richie Sadler here is the only man of sport here, you would be wrong. Because these two women are huge sports fans. And they are also responsible for a sportsing achievement. Uh, probably bigger than anything Richie has ever achieved, to be honest. Because uh, they have done something that is part of the Irish national psyche. And you all know, and will join me, I'm sure, in Ooh, ah, Paul McGrath. I said, Ooh, ah, Paul McGrath. I said, Ooh, ah, Paul McGrath. I said, Ooh, ah, Paul McGrath. That is up there with Billie Jean for a baseline. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, these two women sitting here in front of you are responsible for that part of our national psyche. That, that is impressive, right? And the weird thing is, how I've known you guys for 20 years, and I did not know that. You, well, you are national treasures, but you should be 
you know, like on the sides of buses and stuff. <laughs> anyway, look, we're going to get to our guests in just a moment, but uh, before that, uh, moi, I get to talk to you about my own uh, history of sex and sexuality. You see, the thing is that I don't feel old, and I think we can all agree that given the right amount of alcohol, distance, light, and macular degeneration, I still look pretty fine. <laughs> but occasionally, I am confronted with the yawning gap that still exists between me and, well, people that I don't think of as that much younger than me. There are other times I'll be telling, say, the current Mr. Bliss, who's somewhat younger than I, and, you know, some story from my childhood or something, or more worryingly, even from my college days, and I can see him sort of looking at me and thinking how quaint and old-timey it sounds. But one of the subjects that inevitably makes me feel like Laura Ingalls Wilder when talking to millennials is sex. <laughs> Because, you see, in common with most people from my generation, the mysteries of sex and sexuality were teasingly, slowly revealed to me over the years, decades, epochs even, You know, the mechanics, the possibilities, the variety, the pitfalls, the maneuvers, you know, all drip-fed to me through rumor and nudges and overheard snippets, through Jilly Cooper novels and Richard Gere movies, through trial and error, embarrassed fumbles, giggling mistakes, and more experienced lovers and happy accidents. And each new discovery was another exquisitely exciting step on a magical mystery tour that even now I am occasionally surprised and delighted <laughs> to find out that it hasn't quite run out of track. But my younger friends just turned on their modems at home while their parents were out, and the internet poured every possible, and some you'd think impossible, position and productivity <laughs> in full color, surround sound, anatomically correct pornographic detail into their teenage laughs in one huge, lubricated, terrifying, <laughs> exciting, shameless, overwhelming data dump. Now call me old-fashioned, but I'm glad that I got the mystery tour. My burgeoning teen sexuality was just too confusing and too alien to deal with properly at school, so for the most part, I just ignored it. Of course, as I went through my teenage years, I started to suspect that I might be gay, but that was still such an alien concept, you know, so foreign, so Protestant, so <laughs> removed from my actual experience that I mostly ignored these uncomfortable suspicions. I had never met, or even seen, to be sure, a real, actual, bona fide homosexual. So the idea that I might actually be one was, well, almost impossible to process. You might as well have wondered if I were a unicorn. <laughs> you know, I wasn't actually totally sure that gays really actually existed, you know, invented to be the subject of schoolyard jokes and played for smutty laughs on sitcoms, because there were no gays in my world. There was no hairdresser with trendy tattoos in my local mother's salon. There was no lesbian couple breeding dogs on my vet father's client list. There was no Graham Norton being casually gay on the telly, no Will Young singing about boyfriends on the radio, no Anna Nolan being a lesbian nun on Big Brother. You know, even my toothy, tanned, big-haired, and short-shorted George Michael was straight at the time. <laughs> There was only the pathetic Mr. Humphreys, swishing and flapping his way through Grace Brothers' department store, leaving a trail of canned laughter in his wake. There were, of course, gays to be seen on the TV, even in my youth and in magazines, but they either didn't identify themselves as gay at the time, or we simply didn't recognize them as such. You know, when the village people appeared on the telly in the 1970s, the boys of Ballinrobe's Christian Brothers in National School just thought that they were five fun guys who'd like to dress up and, you know, be creative. You know, we simply had no frame of reference for a leather queen. And when Boy George first appeared on Top of the Pops, I remember so clearly the next day was all we could talk about, but the big discussion was all whether he was a boy or a girl. The idea that he might simply have been a flaming queen never entered our minds. Now, that may seem incredible now, you know, that we didn't just assume that Larry Grayson or Kenny Everett or Vincent Hanley were gay, but they were not casually referring to hot guys on chat shows or discussing husbands in the TV guide. And, you know, what did an 11-year-old boy in Ballinrobe, County Mayo, know about, you know, mustaches or check shirts or faded jeans or any of the other telltale signs of 70s and 80s urban homosexuality? Absolutely nothing. And it was actually in my parents' library that I first confirmed the existence of gay men. Because among the books, I discovered a yellow-paged, dog-eared copy of The Naked Ape by zoologist Desmond Morris. 
Now, Morris's book was one of the very first, you know, sort of popular science books you know, to look at humans as animals and compare them to other animals. And like any curious you know, boy of my age would, I skipped all the boring parts and went straight to the chapter on sexuality. And within that chapter, there was a subsection on homosexuality. And it was a revelation to pubescent me, you know, because Morris, he calmly and very matter-of-factly described what homosexuals were and what they did. And for the first time ever, not only did I have solid proof that gay people existed, but more thrillingly at the time, for the first time ever, there was someone, an obviously smart and respected man, a doctor even, who wasn't laughing at homosexuals or judging them or denouncing them. He was simply describing them. And that thrilled me. And I read it over and over and over again. And I read it sexually excited and intellectually giddy because here I was, um, you know, what I was reflected back at me, you know, in black and yellowed white for the very first time. And it was so thrilling, it was actually terrifying, so terrifying that I would slam the book shut and shove it back under my bed and try to forget all about it till you know, the next time I crawled in under the bed to get it again with my heart in my homosexual mouth. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's funny because we all have the, the origin story of how we discovered sex and all, and it's one of the questions I love to ask people normally because it's always interesting and different depending on who you are and where you came from and what your family is like. Although I think in the future, that question is going to become boring because the answer is going to be the same from everybody. Pornography on their phone or something. Let's start with you, Taryn. I have to because you're wearing that ridiculous and fabulous hat. So, you know, how did you discover sex and sexuality? So um, I did have a pretty sex-positive upbringing and Australian education system at that time was reasonably sex-positive. Like mm. we learned how to put condoms on bananas when I was a 15-year-old, you know, things like that. So um, I had quite a good, well-rounded sex education education in terms of that type of sex. But what was kind of interesting for me was that I didn't really discover that I was actually bisexual until I was 40, even though I'd had sexual experiences. How old are you now? I think, I'm, am I 42? What, what year are we talking about that in, you know, the 15-year-olds in Australia were putting <laughs> condoms on things? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I discovered that I was bisexual, which was really weird because I'd had sexual experiences with women and I'd been attracted to them, but I had always just assumed I was heterosexual because everybody's heterosexual. But so and your sex education, in a sense, in school was relatively forward-looking, whatever. It but was. bisexuality wasn't something you would ever... part of my education was probably lacking. Yeah. I grew up with uh, around a lot of adults who were comfortable being nude mm -hmm. and so the naked body didn't bother me and, you know, I didn't have any of the shame and embarrassment that a lot of people seem to have around well, shame bodies. and embarrassment is like an Irish national sport. So um, <laughs> the, uh, the people who were educated in Ireland, so Richie, you had a single sex, it was a school, who, who was running it? I actually work in the school now delivering the sexual health module but I went there, it was De La Salle School. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so the only reference to sex that I remember was in the reproduction chapter of the biology section of your science that yeah like what goes where and that yep. was it there was no discussion around anything else and i didn't really grow up in a house where nothing like how taryn <laughs> described at all yes. there's no discussions there was no openness yeah just don't mention it it, and it then, doesn't but, exist but i guess you picked up stuff in the playground or whatever like you know i did where did you get your education well from? actually i I suppose the one bit of formal input I got from my parents, it was excruciatingly embarrassing for me at the time. I was, I think, in the first couple of months of first year, so I would have been 13, and I snogged a girl after the local youth club disco behind the school. And somehow my mum got talking to her mum and they found out. She said it to me one day and she mentioned the girl's name and that she knew something had happened. And she handed me a book the following day and said, would you read that? <laughs> and I did. But what kind of book? Oh, it was only basic Anne and Barry type, you know. Yes, yeah. But yeah. there was no follow-up discussion. There was no, come to us if you have any follow-up questions yeah. or let's explore this more. It was, we've given you the book. You said you've read it. That's our job done. Yeah. And and I mean, I was happy with cross. that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't object to that. That was fine. That was more than enough. Now, Maria, you went to boarding school in Ireland. Yes. Where, in County Tips? In Tipperary, yeah. Was there a formal sex education? Oh, no. No, not at all. Convent of Mercy nuns, it didn't exist, sex didn't exist. But of course, because it was a boarding school, mm -hmm. there was lots of 
passions and unrequited yes. passions and very little physical aspects to it. But longings, you know, uh, mission and uniform <laughs> comes to mind, you know, that, that old film. I've also sort of envied girls that. You're, you're almost allowed as teenage girls to have, like, crushes. Yes. You know, where boys aren't. Yes, and girls are allowed to kind of link and be more physical yes, with each other. Yeah. That's a real little liberation that, that females have. And the, well, we can, in this culture, but, you know, then you go to Arab countries or whatever and the men are all walking around holding yes. hands. And it's confusing, to be it honest. It is confusing, <laughs> yes. Um, but so where did you find out about sex? Well, if I'm honest, sex came in the form of exploring with other kids of mm-hmm. my age. You know, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Mm. There was a quite regular exposure by old men. Encounter tip. Yeah, encounter tip. What? <laughs> yes, you know, the, you, you'll always get some dirty alfala, you know, um, trying it on or something. Yeah. yeah, so that was really quite common. But the other aspect would be, because I'm a farmer's daughter, I noticed that the cows in the fields, now urbanites out there don't know that cows are all female, a cow is a female, but the cows, they would mount each other. Okay? Yes, yeah. And I yeah. knew that they were all female, and I thought, that's really fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so the I was, classic I was, lesbian <laughs> backstory, yeah. <laughs> so th- so that gave me great heart. I knew that there was two female things going on, you know. Now, now well, you're also, you're a Tipperary too, also, Dr. We've, Paul, we just so discovered this when we yes. sat down, also Tipperary. And I, I suppose mine was this perfect storm of being from a rural area, but not being a farming area. Yeah. So when you, when you grew up in the country, everyone presumes you're a farmer. So we were like country town. And so there was none of that learning from the yeah. land or cows <laughs> mounting each other. <laughs> there was nothing at home, nothing from And, my, and my, school yeah. was Christian Brothers. It was a Christian Brothers school. Yeah. So I remember a science book. Yeah. So it would have been that type of discussion of, of reproduction or something like that. Page 138, I can still remember. <laughs> so it's funny. So yeah, straight to, uh, to that to, fi- to find that out. But similarly, as Maria said, yeah. I remember being involved in a, in, in a youth group but there's like very unpleasant, sleazy man around. And even at that age, just knowing that there was a sense of danger yeah. or it just wasn't right. And it was unspoken, of course. I've never, wouldn't have told anyone at the time. So you knew to be uh, careful. You knew that there were certain people you'd be careful around. Now, Carol, you were born in England, so you you saw your parents having sex and everything, right? No. (laughs) No, in fact, um, we were sent to Sunday school. We were brought up Methodist, not particularly religious. And it was years later that I realised my parents sent us off to Sunday school so they could have sex. I thought... (laughs) What they said was they were doing the washing, that that was a Sunday morning thing, was to, all the laundry would get done. And in fact, they were having Did you have sex. to sit down with your parents or did you have mm. something in school or it was just all... Nothing, nothing at all. I think everything I learned was from my peer group friends and from my older brother. Mm. But I have, there is a kind of an association for me between music and sex because I remember going to my first piano lessons and it was this old guy, Mr. McDaniel. And if I got there early, I could f- sit under the sofa and... F- pull out old titbit magazines that had photographs of naked ladies in them. So Audrey Swinburne would be finishing her class <laughs> and I'd be going, ah, ah, I don't believe what I'm seeing. So, yeah, that was my latest sexuality there. <laughs> now, 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 Shauna, yeah. you grew up in Seattle. Yes. And so it was an open, everybody, hippie... I, it's, it's weird. Seattle's very liberal. We're, we're very much like Washington state is a very blue, like yeah. liberal state. Um, but we do kind of have these conservative pockets. Mm. So Puyallup, the town that I'm from. What? <laughs> Puyallup. 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 I don't believe that. We, we have a we have <laughs> state fair and our tagline is do the Puyallup. Uh, <laughs> and this is where I come in. And yeah, so I got a lot of like mixed signals where we, we had comprehensive like state funded sex education where we did the condom on a banana, all that mm-hmm. stuff. But then they followed it up with an abstinence only educator. And similarly, like with my, my parents, my, my mother was very progressive and that like as soon as she got a hint that me and my sister might be coming sexually active, she got us down to our GP and got us both on birth control but also followed it up with saying, like, it's, you know, it'd be best if you waited until marriage. And I was like, did you and dad wait till marriage? And then she was like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, then there you go. <laughs> but, but, but it was interesting reading, reading about you because your mother was, was Christian. Yeah, so my... Like evangelical Christian? Evangelical Christian. And yet 
her when and it my came sister. to her, yeah. And yeah, but when it came to her daughters, she was like, no, we absolutely, we need to like make sure that, that you guys aren't going to get pregnant before you're ready. So down to the GP, we went and got, both got put on the pill at the same time. God, I love a bit of practical hypocrisy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Paul, you have dedicated, to, you're just studying the Irish and sex and all that. The obvious big change now is the whole in, advent of the internet. It's continuing to evolve. I mean, I think it's interesting yeah. to listen to the different experiences from different countries. And there's always, with the Irish piece, there's always this idea that Ireland is different. Yeah. There's a weird exceptionalism. Yeah. But actually, compared to England, Britain at the time, for example, in the 60s, it wasn't that dissimilar mm. in the north of England to what it was in Ireland. Mm. I mean, my work has kind of covered both the 1960s and the 70s, kind of right up to looking at how people are meeting online. I'm particularly looking at kind of sex work and male sex work and how people are, are, are using this in kind of wonderful creative ways to kind of buy intimacy and buy all a range of different things, you know. Well, so, I mean, that is an absolute sea change from being introduced to the idea of sex by cows mounting each other <laughs> to being able to turn on a phone and it sort of coming at you whether you wanted to or not in a way. Yeah, and I think there is an older generation, let me say. I mean, I think there is this sort of fear of younger people and it's like, you know, we didn't have in this, this in our day and I don't know this. But I mean, again, the research shows that young people are pretty savvy. They're not sitting in, TV, uh, in front of a computer chatting to strangers in Illinois that they know nothing about. I think we have to give young people a little bit more credit, I yeah. think. Now, now, Rich, you, and you've focused on teenage boys and consent and all that. Does the internet and all of that affect them differently than the way we learned about sex. Well, I'll tell you, there's two things that I immediately just, without having any expertise in the area. One is, I liked the journey because small things were exciting to me because I thought that was you know, the biggest thing you could do. And then over you know, the course of my life, you, know, you discovered other things. Whereas, you know, if you're 17 now, you already know all the stuff that I didn't know till I was 30, then 40, whatever. And the other thing is, occasionally I might accidentally wander onto a sexy website and down the side, I'll see these like little pictures of heterosexual pornography in that. And it, it makes me feel weird because it's also sort of violent looking. Is that a real issue or am I just being granny here? And Well, I do a six-week module with transition year lads and we have a, an hour and a half class on porn. And, and we just tease out, we don't do it in any kind of a judgmental, you know, you, yeah. you shouldn't be or finger-wagging approach at all. It's just really to tease out with them what are their attitudes about sex based on what they're watching in porn mm. and why porn is relevant is because it's it's filling the gap. Teachers don't do it. Parents are sometimes awkward about it. Older siblings don't talk openly about it. So if you're, you mentioned the age 17 there, like the lads typically in our class will see porn for the first time somewhere between 11 and 13. And now I obviously don't go in looking for details, you know, how often do you watch it and how, how many times a week and blah, blah, blah. But that's generally the experience. Very rarely you would, you would get a fella say he didn't see it until, like for the first time until 14 or 15. It's generally 11 to 13. And you'll get lads who'll say it below that. You know, and I think the casual observer would say, God, that's so young to know all that stuff or see all that stuff. Is if, if, if a kid now has a smartphone with unlimited access to the internet and there's no parental control, which is a difficult thing for parents to mm. properly grasp. Kids are curious and their sexuality is emerging at this age. Like it's appropriate to be curious about sexuality at that age, but now they have access to all sorts of footage and films, which sometimes could be unhealthy for them to see. So we, we, we kind of, we just accept all that. Mm -hmm. So we don't go in there with the protein, you know, we're going to change your behaviours here. At the, by the end of this module, yeah. none of you will be interested in all this. It's really to just to, to tease out what their expectations are and what they think sex involves if porn is their only teacher. And how did, how did it come about, the, the whole workshop thing? Well, I, I, I kind of shifted the focus of my psychotherapy practice to adolescence about three, four, five years ago. And the more I was working with them, the more I realised this topic was coming up. And I did a mental health module initially in my school and again this topic kept coming up and a few things happened at the same time one of the, the staff members had read Louise O'Neill's novel Asking for yes. It yeah. I had a couple of clients in my practice that were in difficulty in this area and it was just a conversation in school one day and they said this whole consent thing is there anything we can or should be doing and at the time I'd been having discussions with another couple of people and I said I know who to contact I contacted a woman called Elaine Burns. She's a psychologist down in NUI Galway. And we just cobbled together something. 
and on a trial and error basis, we it, it just evolved. So we've been yeah. doing it about two and a half years, covering all the things that you think would be appropriate mm. to discuss. So consent is one aspect of that. Which is really, Taryn, your parenting style. Mm. You're very open with the kids, answer any questions they have, all about consent, uh, down to hugging with uncles and all that. Why was that so important to you? in parenting. It's particularly important for me because I've experienced a lot of sexual assault and been raped twice in my life. And I really was very aware that I don't want that to happen to my children and mm -hmm. I don't want my children to do that to other people. Mm -hmm. I thought it would be my kind of worst nightmare idea. So for me, it was about teaching my kids about consent and body autonomy mm -hmm. is a, a really important practice in kind of creating the type of society that I would like to live in and yeah. that I would like my children to live in, which is one where we're all, we are all respectful of each other's bodies mm -hmm. and respectful of each other's body autonomy. Just slightly off the back of what Richie said there about the pornography, I think the important thing is if you have that sort of a energy of no stigma and shame with your children, I have said to my kids, you will see things that are alarming when you're on the internet. And when you see something that's alarming, come and talk to me about it because mm. you don't have to deal with that on your own. Yeah. And it's inevitable, even if you do have parental controls, they have friends who have things and they show each other. I mean, you just cannot stop kids from seeing yeah. this stuff. So what you have to do is you have to tell them, uh, prepare them for it before they see it and let them know this is the pathway to get help. Okay. That, and I also make sure as my kids are older that I would talk a lot about, do you understand that a lot of pornography is actually not really reflective of most people's experience of sex? Mm. And that, you know, I've said to my older teenage children, there are feminist porn sites, if you'd like me to give you the addresses, if that's what you're into, you know, that Thanks, are Mom. a bit more healthy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're more kind of healthy porn. If you yeah. want to look at porn, then this is kind of porn where consent and body autonomy is is uh, involved in it, you know. Mm. So I'm probably the most open person in my house, despite <laughs> my efforts with my children. <laughs> but how does that go down in Donegal? Uh, my kids provide a lot of sex education for their friends <laughs> and sometimes for their friends' parents. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah. How old is your oldest? Uh, my oldest is 18. God, and so, you know, when you're in the teenage years, you know, everybody wants their mom to be just the same boring mom that everybody has. Yeah. Like, has she ever said, oh, shut up, you know? Yeah, they all go through different phases, really. I think when they're, the, when they get to the teenage years, they're actually quite grateful and they'll come home and they'll say, oh, mom, you know, this friend of mine was saying that you don't have to use birth control if you're, you know, in the week after your period. And I said to her, no, that's not right. And she she didn't believe me. And I said, well, I'm going home to check with my mom, you know, and she comes back and then she goes back into school and she says, no, no, you don't, you have to use birth control. You know, you could get pregnant at that time. So they come and they talk to me and they're quite glad that I can and be a reliable source of information for them and their friends at, the, at that point. Crazy ladies, um, I'm not coming to you just because you're lesbians, but I am. Because it is funny, you know, the experience of, you know, gay people is different, isn't it? Because, you know, the straight stuff is out and about and sort of everywhere. In a way, we can model stuff from TV, movies, all that stuff. But in, certainly in our day, there was nothing to model off. So how did you discover that? side of your sexuality? For me, I was having sex with my boyfriends and my girlfriend and I, my best girlfriend and I, we found a book called How to Please Your Man in Bed and we poured over this together and then we found this chapter which said, invite your best friend to join you in a threesome and then we just couldn't get out of that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> what was this book? <laughs> I bet you bought that in England. <laughs> uh, now, um, you're going to do uh, the first of two songs for us. Uh, Maria, do you want to tell us about it? Shall we do uh, Heaven Is Here? Sure. Yes, Heaven Is Here. Yes, well, let's hear it. I would go there when I die 
at the beauty of this world I know that love is all that matters It's more precious than gold and pearls Up, up, up Slumbering on the stars Up, up, up And heaven's been here all the while Heaven is here Gorgeous. Thank you so much. Shauna, yes. you came here, there was a man involved, wasn't there? Yeah. You know, like yeah. a lot of blow-ins, <laughs> that's how it happens. And we, now that, that relationship ended, and do you have an uh, other? And uh, so it's a long story. But um, you then decided very entrepreneurially <laughs> to um, start an online sex shop. Yes. You call it Sex Shopper to sort of mark it out as Irish in a way, I guess. And it's also super female-friendly. It's lots of curved lines and deep purples <laughs> and stuff when you're online. So, well, well, tell me how that came about. I mean, how does a nice girl from Seattle, from Potchy Watts, you mean, you know, end up with an online sex shop in Ireland? Yeah, it kind of came about just really organically. I love my vagina and I love my clit and I just wanted what was best for them, to be honest. <laughs> no, there Were was, you getting bad sex here? Um, I'm, I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> no, like basically what it boiled down to is I had a vibrator and my vibrator was dying to death and I needed a new one. So I was going into lots of shops in Dublin and I just wasn't a kind of customer experience that I was hoping it would be. It's a lot of male-dominated spaces. And so I, the next time I was in Seattle, I went to the big female-founded sex shop called Babeland. And natural light does a lot for a shop. And I, <laughs> <laughs> natural light and like good yes. displays and stuff. And the staff all really knew what they were talking about. And it was a much lovelier shopping experience. Yeah. And I, I got a vibrator and then I texted my, my friend Tara, who I just realized is like in the audience. And this is the first time I've told that story with her in the, in the same room. And I was Hi, like... Hi, Tara, you slut. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Tara, I really, I think I want to uh, start a sex shop. And she was like, I think that we, we should do that. And so we did like market stalls together. Um, and then Market she, stalls? Yeah. Like in, you know, whatever the Christmas uh, market. Uh, like, like kink events and stuff. Okay, and we okay, did yeah. like lovely like um, hand poured like candles and things and like little birches, like things that you could hit each other with. <laughs> and, we, and we did that for a while. And then she started her own design business and was like, look, I, I really want you to move forward with this. So like, please like keep doing this. And so I did. And then a year later, I opened up Sex Shoppa in its like current iteration. Two of the things, uh, things about the shop uh, struck me as interesting. One is that around 50% are men. Yes. Especially when, you know, if you look at your website, it's clearly aimed at a female audience, I, I would say. Yes. Okay. And then the other very interesting thing is that the age profile of your customers is getting older. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. So what do you think accounts for that? I think that I'm, because I'm trying to get the word out there that there's a lot of ageism yeah. the way we talk about sex. We don't see a lot of that in pop culture. We don't see a lot of that represented in pop culture. And so when I'm doing interviews, I want to like remind people that like, hey, once you're postmenopausal, you're still going to be able to have sex. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, you might want it more than you did when you were in your 20s. So just trying to get that message out there. And I noticed that like a lot of younger people and people from Dublin like to email when they have a question and older people and people from down the country want to ring you up and have the chats about it. Oh, so I get I get a lot of phone calls from um, from people down in like the depths of like Carrie and Claire who like want to ring up because, you know, they don't they don't have a local sex shop or they wouldn't be caught dead in their 
local sex yeah. shop. Um, but they need to talk to someone about it. So they ring up me, which is great. It feels like a massive honor that they would put their trust in this complete stranger up in Dublin. And what kind of thing do you, as an older Irish lady, tell you? about her sex life. So the the one that, that really struck me was a, a woman from Dan and Kerry whose husband had died a couple years previous and she she didn't want to do internet dating. There was no one in town that like took her fancy. But her sexual frustration was such that she she felt like she really needed a vibrator. And she's like, I love my husband. I don't want to date anyone else, but I, I want to be able to remember him and be able to get off at the same time. <laughs> so I recommended a vibrator to her and I just just, you know, wrote a little note for her and said, like, I hope I hope this helps. And, and is, it, is it true, though, that you also hear from older women that they've n- maybe never had an orgasm? Yeah, I'm, I'm, see- I'm hearing from more and more women that have never had orgasms before. And it usually comes off the back of a divorce as well. <laughs> like, um, yeah, di- like recently divorced, never had an orgasm. And were they faking it during a relationship? They must have been. Must have been. <laughs> Blame Meg Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Dr. Paul, so if you were to look at the Irish experience and all of the research and the, the nerdy stuff that you do, is there anything that makes it different than, you know, other similar-ish countries? I mean, just picking up on some of those things, I think it's interesting. I just remember when, um, you know, Anne Summers opened up in, in, yes. in the 90s, and there was a big furore big about this, about, about it, yeah. you know, selling dildos on a concert. Was that an appropriate trade, you know? Whether Ireland is different uh, in relation to that, well, it's funny, because I wrote this book about Ireland in, in the 60s and 70s, and I was looking at these through an agony and Angel McNamara, and people that wrote in. And then I also interviewed men who were of that age, grew up and were married at that age. And it's interesting, again, this is the idea about singling Ireland out. You had all of this Catholic infrastructure and the laws and the censorship and all of these sort of things. But actually underneath that, you had these couples just trying to navigate and work it out by themselves, you know. So I remember there was one man that I spoke to who didn't want to use contraception or they couldn't get access to contraception. They didn't want to have any more children. So they just flipped their sexual life change to that he would give her oral sex. And this was in 1964. And, you know, and it just kind of really brought home to me the idea that, you know, that people were trying to work things out, you know, in a way that... They found a workaround. They tried to work around, you know. And, and you know, France, for example, had laws against contraception. Right? Did it? Did he, see, yeah, I was from about to, I was 20, about to say to you, surely the contraception yeah. situation did single us out in a way, but no. Well, 1920 to 1967, uh, France legalised. But you all do this situation where, like, Britain, for example, had contraception, but in so many areas you couldn't get it. So it didn't make a difference if it was on the statute book or not. Mm. The question was about access. It was about doctors. It was about this kind of infrastructure, you know, and whether it it, it allowed you to have the sexual life that you wanted uh, to have. Well, one of the things that I actually like about our way of dealing with, I think a bit of Catholic guilt makes things a bit more exciting. Yeah, but like, I, I wouldn't want to be Germany. <laughs> you know, where they're so open about everything. I, it was thrilling to be doing something that I thought was sinful and bad. I think the story about Ireland is told generally by other people. You know, mm. we had a whole cultural nationalist movement who told us at, before independence that, oh, you know, Britain is this sinful, they're on the highway to hell, but Ireland, different, you know, we've higher moral standards, we've got this, we're different. You had the Catholic Church telling us that we were also different, mm. you know. But it's only now that we're actually telling our own story. Well, Ca- Carol, what year did you come to Ireland? Uh, 1985. And did you sort of arrive in this is like this weird repressed place or it was same as home? It was very different. But I think what I really enjoyed about arriving at that time in 1986, it was just the beginning of that wave of the liberal voices and to become part of all of that, yeah. uh, leading up to 92 and the decriminalisation, just to have participated in such a strong yeah. liberal wave was wonderful for me. Can I jump in yeah. there? Yeah. The difference course, was do, that yeah. she arrived into the lesbian scene. Oh, yeah. So that was like a, it was a different planet to ordinary heterosexual Ireland. Mm. So we were finding out about sex and having sex with each other and it was radical and progressive kind of thing, you know, whereas straight girls had very little experience of having good sex with their boyfriends and stuff, you know. I mean, you could safely say that the clitoris was unknown uh, almost and and female orgasm. Mm. But within the lesbian world, of course, 
absolutely not. It was the complete opposite, <laughs> you know. So it was a, just a different mini world, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. In J.J. Smith's on Angel Street. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think that yeah. movement you see happening towards in that period is for certainly for straight women as well. It's this movement to pleasure that there's the movement yes. away from that. Sex was so linked to reproduction. It was so linked to duty. It was so linked mm. to love. And then suddenly you are like women want sex because it's pleasurable and people and women wanted orgasms and better orgasms yeah. and yes. more orgasms. You, he needs to do an ad for sex <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I mean, I, I bought that. <laughs> Richie, when you're talking to young men here now, does guilt and the, the kind of stuff that we struggle with play into it? We try and make it as normal and as sex positive a conversation as possible. Um, so guilt really doesn't come into the room a hell of a lot. They wouldn't express it in those terms anyway. When we talk about porn, they'll openly, you know, in a joke way, lads, particularly at that age, 16-year-olds, like humour is a big yeah, d- yeah. defence thing in particular there's a lot of tension when you talk about sex to a group of lads and they'll break the tension by making a lot of jokes so you have to harness all that energy in a really yeah. fun way but we tease it out really what their attitudes are to sex and, and what, what is their attitude to it? Um, we go in and, and our whole thing is if you go back 20 years when I was sitting in the exact same classrooms the teachers would have if we would have had a conversation about sex they would have assumed we're all heterosexual to begin mm. with and we might, might have been nudged into waiting to be sexually active until we were married. Now we assume there's all sorts of different sexualities in the room and our language reflects that. Your parents will bring their 15-year-old son to my show sometimes or something, and you know, he's, in, he's in sort of full boy makeup, you know, and he, everyone's fine with it. Mm. It's just an incredible change. But at the same time then, I also still hear awful stories. You know, it, it's a very mixed bag, I think. Yeah, I think when we first introduced the module, all the parents, we sent them a letter, so it was an opt-out letter. So mm. we'd be respectful of their, their attitudes and whenever we gave a rough outline of the topics, we'd yeah. be bringing up and said, if you don't want your lad to be involved, that's okay, but let us know. And no one signed it. And then we got really good feedback from the parents that we were kind of facilitating chats at home that wouldn't have happened otherwise if the module didn't happen. So our aim is kind of to start chats with the lads and promote discussion from student to student. And now, Shauna, in a way, you've got this American accent. Yeah. Do you think that helps or hinders you to talk about sex largely because I have to say that I feel like I'm you know super open about these things and God look at me you know so but, <laughs> but when you're casually sitting there talking to me in this studio that we've often used about vibrators and stuff it's just it yeah it's new <laughs> do you know what I mean possibly I think um, when people hear my voice they're probably like oh she's American of course she's into that yeah. uh, <laughs> and so I think in that sense it, it does make it a little easier but I suppose uh, at the same time I, I called my shop sex shopper for a reason yeah you know, I've spent my my entire adult life in Ireland. Mm. Um, I moved here when I was 20. And I just, I wanted it to be something that was for Ireland by Ireland. And I just felt like I was, I, I might be the person running the show, but I wanted it to be something for, for everyone. Well, how long have you been here now? So I've been here for almost 15 years. Yeah. yeah. So in that, and, and it's a pretty remarkable you know, p- period of social change in this country. Oh, yeah. You know, what would you, yeah. you know, what's the difference that you've noticed in that period? Um, so... <sighs> I, I always say that we're we're much more liberal than we give ourselves credit for, just because I I don't I don't think I would have started the business if I didn't think that I couldn't sell sex toys here. Mm. I, I just I had this feeling deep inside of me that we mightn't talk about it, the media mightn't talk about it. Like certainly in 2012, I think the the most conversation we were having about sex in the media was just sort of like titillation mm. when something bad happens or like page three girls yeah. and I wanted to kind of help push mm. that conversation forward and I noticed um, when I give talks and things that everybody like the audience would be completely like quiet and mm-hmm. until I say okay the first person who asks me a sex question gets a free bottle of lube and then all of the hands go up <laughs> they're um, mostly very dry yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> now Richie you of course what would you like to see change in that I, what, what I would like to change, and in fairness, I think it is changing, is that we take a different approach to how we support young people in the area, mm. in, in this area in particular. And a lot of it is for really understandable reasons. If it's in a classroom setting, some teachers, like adults, they come from a, a background where they don't, they weren't brought up in any kind of sex-positive environment. They're, they'll, they'll be loaded with their own 
attitudes and values and, and their own opinions about it. But I think for young people now and the, all the umpteen challenges they face, I think we could do sex education better. I'm going to come over this side. Paul? I would like or wish a kind of a new conversation around sex. I think the way we talk about sex is often, I think as we said earlier, a problem or it's medicalized or still linked to a degree of of disease or harm or porn or, or all of these sort of things. But I think also we could have kind of a wider discussion about sex as being a positive thing, about intimacy thing. I think the second thing I would be, I would really love the state to first of all ask young people what they include young people into a conversation about sex education and what they feel uh, relevant. I mean, this has been done in other jurisdictions. I think that's important. We're always telling young people what they need to know. I think we need to listen a little bit uh, more. And the state really needs to get its act together about what it wants, what vision it wants, and have that uniform across schools. Because we've got this crazy situation of having a so-called national system, but of course it's not. Different schools teach different things around sex ed. Some, even religious schools, can be very positive, and others get nothing. So I think we really do need to try and standardise that and try and bring others in, parents, young people themselves, teachers, into that conversation. Taryn, what have you learned? I would say that improving the sexual education that young people get. But I'd also like to see a lot more supports for parents because I think it's an area that parents really struggle with Mm. and they don't have the language or the confidence to speak to their children about this. So um, I'm just going to keep pushing my sex-positive agenda on Ireland (laughs) for as long as you still have me. Brace yourselves, Donegal. Maria, um, just... uh, what would you give what advice would you like to have had? My particular angle would be for girls to discover masturbation and feel good about it. Mm. For that to um, literally open up more to themselves <laughs> because boys, you see, there's a very obvious early, you know, arousal and, you know, wet dreams. But for girls it's different. There's this it's kind of a, a deeper mysterious anatomical thing. So I think that is, that's a, a thing that's crying out to be encouraged more, girls to discover their masturbation and to be self-empowering from that. Because there's a strong emphasis with kind of the guys, it's still quite male-dominated, the sexuality thing, a, a certain sense of male entitlement to sex. So they think that the guy gets his orgasm and that's it, that's the end of the sex act. So there's, I think there's still a lot of ignorance about uh, female sexuality. So bring it on for girls masturbating. Sean, you need to get her email address because that's a good <laughs> customer sitting right there. And now, uh, so Therese, you're going to play us out. Yes. Um, uh, Carol, why don't you tell us about the song? Oh, I'm going to tell you about the song. This is a song called Remember That You Did It First With Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear it. <laughs>
lights up her body as she lies across your bed when you slide yourself inside her inside her body and her head remember 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 that you did it first did it first with me. Thank you. Well, that, boys and girls, uh, concludes our Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex in Ireland But Never Got to Ask program. Now, you can uh, catch up on this episode on pantasocracy.ie and you'll find some videos of the beautiful performances from Zrazi as well. And of course, you can catch up on all episodes of Pantasocracy on podcasts, which are available from all your usual and standard podcast homes. And please share, rate and review, which is what you have to say nowadays. And it sounds appropriately suggestive today. So thank you all so much for being here with us. And that was the end of our Tabaret of Conversations. Thank you and good night. <laughs>